0: Discussing the passage, um, there's a little bit of a little something for everyone in that passage, isn't there? Well, we do have a lot to cover, as I'm sure you all know, having gone through uh, the passage for tonight. There's there's a lot of words to discuss, um, so let me go ahead and open our time, just asking the Lord for some help. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to study Your Word and the truth that's contained in it. Lord, we know it's good. And it gives us guidance, Lord, for how we ought to live and how we ought to be and the kind of character that you call each of us to, Lord. So we thank you for that guidance, Lord. And I just pray that in our own lives that we would be able to live lives that adorn the gospel, Lord, and really show your goodness and greatness, Lord, to a world that needs you. So thank you for that opportunity, and I just pray that you would continue to change each of us, Lord, more and more into the likeness of your Son. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. All right. Uh, I see some guys in the back. You guys can sit down. You don't have to stand around. You guys can sit down. That's okay. Um, and hello to everybody on the live stream. I think that's the camera I'm supposed to look at for live stream, isn't it? Um, well, a little bit about me. If you didn't know, I grew up in a private Lutheran school. And if you aren't familiar with the Lutheran denomination, you can kind of think of it as like one step removed from the Catholic Church, like the capital C Catholic Church. So it's not part of the Catholic Church, but it's maybe one step outside of it. So it retains a lot of the more traditional elements of the Catholic worship service, including the more ornate interior design. So We would have these chapel services when I was growing up, and I would often spend service just zoning out and just staring at all the different things that I could look at, like the high ceilings or the intricate paintings. And of course, there were the stained glass windows. And one of the things to note about stained glass windows is that no two pieces of glass are quite exactly alike. And yet, when you fit them all together, and you illuminate the whole thing with a common light source, each piece lights up in a different way. And they come together to form this incredible mosaic. Now, in the Catholic Church, these often contain images that were not pleasing to the Lord. But the medium of stained glass itself is very stunning. And similarly, the Church, it's made up of different members with different roles. Like a stained glass window, each member of the church receives the same light source, the sound doctrine of the gospel, but the way that that gospel truth is expressed in their lives has different emphasis, and it looks a little bit different depending on your roles. So like shining a light through a stained glass window, the same light is shining through each member, but the unique roles each person has will display that in a different way, such that these different expressions of gospel character will complement each other, to form a beautiful picture of what the gospel does. So let's go ahead and read the passage one more time. We're reading in Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So I'm going to follow the outline that our text gives us for tonight. Um, And that means I have seven points. Um, But I hope that you can see that clearly broken down in in the text. So the... First point is found in verse one, and if I could have my first slide, it is the command to teach gospel character. The command to teach gospel character, and that's in verse one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, one of the first things that you should have noticed in this passage is that it starts with but. It's meant to tell us that what follows is a contrast to what was discussed prior. And we can also see that there is a very abrupt change in pronouns. You know, for all the talk of pronouns there is in the world now, here's a good talk of pronouns that we're discussing here. When Paul talks about those who are insubordinate, what kind of pronouns do you see there? You see they, they, they. they. At the end of chapter 1, starting around verse 10, they, 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 then all of a sudden... When we get to chapter 2, there's an abrupt 180, and then Paul says to Titus, but you. So this would be essentially the equivalent of Paul pointing his finger directly at Titus if he were there in the room with him. So Titus is not to be like the undefiled and unbelieving. He's different from them. Paul then gives him a command. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And most of you probably picked up on this in your groups, But the command here isn't exactly to teach sound doctrine. It's to teach what accords with sound doctrine or what is fitting for sound doctrine. So just like specific articles of clothing are meant to fit different parts of your body, certain character qualities are fitting of sound doctrine. See, sound doctrine is not just what you learn or what you think. Sound doctrine should also produce a specific kind of character. And we know that Paul is talking about character because that's precisely what follows. So what kind of character is that? Well, as we'll see, there are different emphases for different kinds of people and different roles. Just like the different pieces of a stained glass window will shine a little bit differently when illuminated by the light of the sun, different kinds of people will shine a little bit differently when illuminated by the light of the gospel. So we'll start with older men. And that is our next point. If I could get my next slide older men, the gospel character of older men. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So, how old is old? I'm very invested in this question. How old is old? Well, it doesn't specifically define old, but we do know that they're not the young men and they're not the women, right? So Paul was likely referring to men who were more advanced in age, who have had time for their faith to to grow and to mature. And these older men are to be sober-minded, et cetera, et cetera. And just to point out, the language here is a little bit different than it was back in chapter one when describing the qualifications for an overseer. For the overseers or the elders, Paul would say that the elder must be this, must be that. Here, he says, older men are to be. These are the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. But since we're not talking about like a specific office here, it's not like you can be disqualified from being an older man if these things aren't true. In fact, if there was a way to get disqualified from being an older man, I think a lot of people would take that. But anyways, sober-minded or temperate. This is a man who can think clearly about all situations. So he's not this hot-headed or temperamental kind of man. He's not easily swayed or tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He's not the kind of guy who overreacts or he goes off the deep end in response to certain circumstances. Next, he is to be dignified. And this means that he's reverent in his behavior and he's respectable. Someone who's dignified does not act like a child. And this conveys the idea of having a seriousness and a weightiness to his character that invites respect from others. Now, it doesn't mean that he is always stoic and never laughs and never has any fun. But life is not a joke to him either. It's not a game. And he doesn't treat spiritual matters flippantly. And he treats things with the appropriate seriousness. So, if this man is leading a Bible study, he doesn't turn it into an opportunity for stand-up comedy. He doesn't approach weighty matters irreverently. That's what it means to be dignified. Next up, we have self-controlled. And even though we're in the older men category right now, young women and young men, you need to pay attention here, too, because you've got this one, too. So, older women, you're not off the hook, either. You may not have this one on your list, but you're supposed to teach this to the younger women, so you better know what it means as well. So someone who is self-controlled is someone who can show discretion and show discernment. Some might say prudent. Someone who is self-controlled can control control their instincts and their passions and their emotions, so they don't go overboard with those things. So if there's a guy who has a gambling problem, he's not self-controlled. The guy who drinks too much, he's not self-controlled. The guy who overeats, not self-controlled. Or maybe bring it, to bring it home a little bit, the guy who plays video games for hours on end and gets behind on his assignments, not self-controlled. Or the guy who's in debt because he just has to have the latest and greatest things that he can't really afford, not self-controlled. So the person who is self-controlled lives in a way that is tempered by wisdom next sound in faith now you should have noticed this in your exegesis groups but you're going to see this word sound all over the place in this passage and whatever it's describing it's talking about something that is strong and healthy and here there are listed three things that an older man should be sound in in this case sound in faith And sound in faith means that his faith is strong and healthy. He knows what he believes and why he believes it. He has a solid knowledge of God's word, and he trusts in God's promises. And he believes that God's plans are good. He doesn't compromise on the gospel. Next, he's also sound in love. So this means he loves God and he loves others. Both of those things are tied together. It's not a guy who's marked by bitterness or holds grudges. He's also not a guy who's only interested in what he gets and how he benefits. But here's a man who bears the burdens of others. Someone who will do that even at great cost to himself without seeking anything in return. So this is a man who cares for people. He's also to be sound in steadfastness. This means that he is unwavering, even in the midst of things that are very hard, different trials and tribulations. He doesn't easily lose heart, even when facing disappointment or difficulty. Another word that comes to mind is endurance or perseverance. This is a man who stands firm and perseveres when things are hard. So that's the older man. And it may seem like I'm going very quickly through these, but that's because there are a lot of of these to go through. So we made it through to the older men. Let's move on to the older women. So if I can have my Next slide. The gospel character of older women. The gospel character of older women. Um, It says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So, firstly, to start off, likewise means that These following characteristics for older women are similar to the characteristics for older men in that they reflect the character that fits with the gospel. So even though there are different things that are highlighted here, they're similar because these are the character qualities that also fit or accord with the same sound doctrine. All right, so who are the older women? How old is old? This is also a question that I need to tread very carefully about. But this is just the feminine version of the same word that's used for older men. No definite age is given, but a few things are clearly implied. Um, firstly, that this older woman is older than other women. Older than other women who have children. Okay? So at least we can infer that much just from the different things that are given here. Older women are to be reverent in behavior. It's similar to the idea of being dignified that was given to the older men earlier. This woman is holy in her character. She knows the role that God has called her to, and her outward lifestyle clearly reflects that she's set apart from the world. So she relates to God, and she relates to those around her according to the kind of woman that God has called her to be. Next, older women here are called to not be slanderers, and the word for slanderers is a, is a pretty strong word. It's diabolos, which, as it sounds, is a word used to refer to the devil himself, who is the supreme slanderer. So older women are not to be like the devil. And I would hope not. But the connection is there. If an older woman engages in slander or malicious gossip, she's quite literally behaving like diabolos, the devil or the accuser the one who seeks to tear down and the one who seeks to divide. So older ladies, watch your words and watch what you say about others. Next, not slaves to much wine. This one's not too complicated. Don't become an old drunk lady. Don't be addicted to wine or alcohol. Don't be held in bondage by the bottle. And if not alcohol, any other addictive thing that can take control. Of your life, and that could be anything. Um, Let's move on to teach what is good. Hmm. Teach what is good. Is that right? Are women allowed to teach in the church? I thought this was Lighthouse Bible Church. Women don't teach here. Isn't the author of this, the Apostle Paul, the very same man who in 1 Timothy said, I do not permit a woman to teach? is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth here is he a hypocrite or maybe is one or one of these books not inspired but we see clearly here in the words of the bible that older women yes you are to teach and we also see that the intention of this particular command is for the older woman to uh, is for them to train the younger women so the recipient of the older woman's teaching is the younger women So when we talk about this idea of this prohibition of women teachers that Paul writes about in 1 Timothy, the full phrase there is, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And the clear context of that passage is the life of the church and leadership over men of the church in particular. So the issue here isn't that women are incapable of teaching or that they should never teach. But the prohibition is specifically about guarding the roles between men and women. And not upsetting the order that God has designed for men and women. So a woman teaching other women or teaching children, it doesn't subvert those roles that God has given to men and women. So the older women are to train the younger women. And essentially this is a call to discipleship. Older women are to disciple the younger women. And that's why, among other reasons, you don't really see older men in the church directly discipling the young ladies. That doesn't seem like a good pattern. In fact, you might have noticed in this passage when Paul directs Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, when he gets to the character qualities for younger women, those are kind of contained within this instruction to older women to teach the younger women. So the implication there, Titus, leave the discipling of the young women to the older women. And of course, the big assumption there is that the older women are actually examples of the good things that they should be teaching and training. They should be examples of the very things that they're teaching and training the younger women. So if if you are an older woman and you do not love your husband or children, you probably shouldn't be teaching the younger woman. But the older woman, who exemplifies a godly life, reverence in behavior, not malicious gossip, not enslaved to much wine, and teacher of good things, these kinds of women are to instruct and teach the younger woman how to live lives of godliness as well. So let's get into some of those character qualities for younger women. So if I can move into the next point here. Younger women, um, the gospel character of young women, verses four and five. It says, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So this starts off with a call for young women to love their husbands and children, and note the order. Husbands are listed first, and frequently, when something is listed first, there's a priority there. In the priority of the young woman's care and affection, her husband should come before her children. Now, who would have problems loving their husbands? Shouldn't a young woman already love her husband? Why would you marry him if you didn't love him in the first place? Well. This implies that at some point, loving your husbands might get kind of hard. And that you might need some help and some encouragement from an older, more seasoned married woman to be trained in loving your husband. Because let's face it, sometimes husbands are hard to love. Maybe he smells. Maybe he's lazy. He doesn't listen. He doesn't lead. And what does Paul say in response to those complaints, the word is Phil Andros. Phil, love, Andros, man. Very simply, love your man. That's what you're called to do. And this is not the grit your teeth and deal with him kind of love, it's talking about having an affection for him. You should like your husband. So, love your man. And note that the fact that the older women are to teach this to the younger women and train them in this, it indicates that this is something you can actually learn, and something that you can grow in. So, if you don't love your husband, it is something that you can learn and be trained to do—to love your husband. So, young women, love your husband. He's the one that God gave you. And if you ever find yourself complaining about your husband, just remember that you're also complaining about the God who provided your husband for you. You're also called to love your children. Now, your children are likely cuter than your husband, but in their own ways, they are also hard to love. For the children, same idea. Another word for it, philotechnos. Phil, love, technos, child. You need to have an affection towards your kids. And love them. And as much talk as there is about instructing your child and discipline, this is more than just doing that. You don't just instruct them or discipline them or just put up with them. But you need to love them. Next up, self-controlled Um, I'm not going to do that one again because it's the exact same word. So all the things that I had mentioned for older men are also applicable for the young women here. So we'll move past that one and we'll move on to pure. Put quite simply, the young woman must behave in a pure or a chaste manner. And I think this is actually more clearly illustrated by considering the opposite, what is not pure. So the, the young woman who is pure... Most obviously, she's not engaged in any sexual activity outside her marriage. Beyond that, this also extends to being pure and modest in the way that she dresses. So she shouldn't be someone who is marked by being you know, flirtatious or scandalous in the way that she acts or in the way that she dresses. Next, she is to be working at home. All right, isn't this one a little bit old-fashioned and outdated? Does this mean that a woman shouldn't have a job outside of her home? Now, I think that most of you ladies in this room have a job outside the home. And what's commanded here, it's not necessarily that women should not have jobs. But what it does mean is that a woman's primary role is to care for her home. And that a job outside of the home should never compromise that priority. Now, I do understand where we live, there are some very real and some very common financial pressures that may push families to maintain two incomes, but when you're deciding if you will work or stay at home, and husbands, you you are involved in making this decision and leading in this decision as well, you have to understand that there are priorities for the roles that God has designed, and those need to come first. And you need to decide whether those roles and those priorities will be compromised as you make that decision. So the next word, kind. Another one that doesn't need that much explanation, to be kind is to be kind. It means to be kind to others. It means to do good to others and to consider others' needs and what would benefit them. So not too complicated for that one. But this next one, might be a little bit more complicated. Uh, submissive actually, it's not. but maybe more controversial, I should say. Submissive to their own husbands, and you know I get the joy of having to address the ladies in the church when we're, uh, when we're getting to this particular um, particular character quality. Submissive to husbands. Now, this one, to the world is a completely offensive concept. And I acknowledge that. But also, are we called to be like the world? No. The scriptures say that friendship with the world is actually enmity with God. We're called to be different from the world. So many would consider the call for women to submit to their husbands as offensive. Well, let me pose this question Is it confusing? Is it confusing? Is the scripture unclear at all with regards to the roles of wives and husbands? No, it's actually not that confusing at all. So if we, have, if we find ourselves having difficulty with a passage like this, and there are other ones like this as well, it's not because the text is hard to understand. In fact, we probably understand it very clearly. And that's why it offends many. If it offends us, to, and then oftentimes to just ease the offense, we might be tempted to then take the word of God and evaluate it through the interpreting lens of what our culture says is acceptable, rather than evaluating our culture through the lens of what God's word says is true. And thus, we create the confusion for ourselves. So what does it mean for a wife to be submissive to her husband? To submit means to put yourself in the right order. It's a term that comes with a military background, and it's used to describe the arranging of troops under the command of a leader. So this means that the wife is to come under, not over, but under her husband's leadership in the home. So the husband's role and his responsibility is to lead his home. And the wife's role and responsibility is to help and support his leadership. And again, this is not a popular idea in the world, and it's not surprising why it's not popular. That's been around for a long time. Ever since the very beginning, you go back to Genesis 3, Satan has been subverting the roles and the order that God has designed for men and women all the way back since then. So it's no wonder that this is still very much under attack today. So young women, young wives you are called to be subject to your husbands, to be submissive to them. And older women, you are called to teach the younger women to be submissive to their husbands. And this means not bad-mouthing your husband even when he messes up, and they may mess up a lot. This means submitting to his leadership even if his leadership is not the strongest. It doesn't mean take over if he's a weak leader. Really, the only caveat is if a husband is asking his wife to sin against the Lord, then the wife is ultimately accountable to God. So why is submission so important? It's important because if not, we read on, you might blaspheme the word of God. That's what it says. The word of God may not be reviled. Whenever you see that or so that, in a passage, those are always keywords, and there are several of them in this passage, including this one. So women, your behavior in all of these areas is a statement about the word of God, and by, by your behavior, you can either reflect the beauty of the gospel and God's word, or you can bring revulsion to God's word and the gospel, and literally blaspheme God's word. Did you know that your behavior could blaspheme God's word? And the natural reaction of the world when it sees inconsistency in your lives is to discredit you, to discredit your faith, and to discredit your God. But to look at this from the positive aspect of things, when you do as God calls you to do and embrace the roles and the gospel character outlined here, living out a life of godliness, you actually demonstrate that the object of your faith is real and beautiful. So do people look at you and see a life saved by the true and living God? Or are people given a reason to disregard the gospel because of the way that you live your life? John MacArthur writes, if it's life-changing truth, then it ought to change your life. Why should people believe that it's life-changing truth if your life isn't changed. Very simple, but very profound. So let's move on to our next point. So if I can have my next slide. This is going to be the gospel character of young men. The gospel character of young men. Verse six. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now we have another likewise here, meaning we're still talking about the same things. We haven't switched topics. All of this is still a description of what kind of character accords with or fits with sound doctrine. But now we see how this plays out for the young men. So there aren't too many men here. We have a few in the back. So I'll just look at you guys for this one. Young man, be self-controlled. And that's all we've got. (laughs) And we already talked about what that means earlier. So the Apostle Paul... Really took it easy on you guys, huh? You've just got one thing. In the the divine wisdom of God, through the Apostle Paul, he chose to keep it very simple for you. You have one job. Be self-controlled. If anything, don't screw this up, because if you do, you don't got anything else. But in all seriousness, Paul mentions this as the primary thing that young men need to pursue precisely because there's such a lack of self-control in young men, typically. Young men are prone to not being self-controlled, prone to not being sensible, prone to excesses, prone to not being very prudent, or to be driven by their fleshly desires and not in control of their passions. So young men, you need to grow in self-control. And as much as I would want to say more, I need to stay true to the text. This is what's given. So let's move on to the next thing, which is the gospel character of leaders. The gospel character of leaders. Paul switches back to instructing Titus specifically on what kind of leader he himself should be. Now, perhaps Titus was considered one of the young men. So as Paul is talking to the young men, he had these specific character qualities that he thinks about for Titus to pursue. But in any case, we know that these are specifically for Titus because he starts off by saying, show yourself. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So firstly, Titus was to be a godly example. Titus was to be an example of good works before others. And this highlights the public nature of his ministry. And there's this pattern that a gospel leader has to display in front of others, and it's important for him to do so. So this isn't saying that a gospel leader should only care about his external appearances, but because external Appearances, they have to come from an inward reality. In that sense, the external behavior should serve as an example to help others to see what the gospel in action looks like and then for them to imitate that. Also, this was not limited to a slice or a portion of his life. It says uh, every aspect in all respects. So his home life, his life in the community and at work, his life with others in the church. Every aspect of his life should be that example in all respects. And of course, for Titus, given the role that he had, it also encompasses probably the most public aspect of his life, and that's his teaching. Titus's teaching needs to be godly as well. And Paul gives us three characteristics that Titus needed to show in his teaching I'll go fairly quickly through these. Integrity. Integrity here refers to how closely his teaching adheres to the word of God and doesn't deviate from it. His teaching needs to stay true to the scriptures. Also, dignity. This is similar to when we we're talking about how older men need to be dignified, but here it's referring to Titus' teaching. His teaching needs to be dignified. It, he needs to handle the scriptures in a way that's commensurate with the importance and the seriousness of his teaching. So the pulpit can't be the place where he, he uses it as, uh, as an opportunity to complain, or if he has an ax to grind, he uses the pulpit for that, or to tell crude jokes, or to gain a following for himself. Thirdly, sound speech that cannot be condemned. So again, we see this word sound. So what does sound speech mean? And I think the next phrase actually explains it for us. It's speech that cannot be condemned. It's speech that is above reproach. There isn't anything in his teaching that could undermine the message that he is trying to communicate. And then we have our next so that in this passage. Again, whenever you see a so that or a that in a passage, it's important and here it's important because it tells us the reason why the character of a leader is so critical. It's so that an opponent of the gospel may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So very similar to our, our, um, our first so that, the character and nature of a leader's example and his teaching can either be a protection for the church or it might give the enemies of the gospel ammunition to attack the church and give them an opening to bring reproach onto the gospel and onto the name of Christ himself. So for those who teach, you might be able to preach more powerfully than George Whitfield. But if your character doesn't accord with sound doctrine, the things that we just mentioned here, then the gospel that you preach is undermined by the very person who's preaching it. Lastly, our final point, if I can get the next slide here. The final point is the gospel character of workers. The gospel character of workers. And we find this one in verses nine to 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Paul now turns his attention to slaves, or in our English Bibles, it may say bond servants. Essentially, we're talking about those who worked under the authority of someone else. The closest version that we encounter would be the jobs that we have with our employers today. And of course, it's not exactly the same, but the principles still apply. Slaves were to be submissive to their own masters in everything. And that means everything. Not just being obedient in the tasks that they were supposed to carry out. It also means having a submissive attitude, not just submissive actions. We also see that Paul, he doesn't give any sort of qualifications as to whether the masters were kind and reasonable masters Uh, whether they were believers or unbelievers or any kind of distinction like that. The fact of the matter is that just like some of us, we have great bosses and others have bad bosses. The slaves back then, some of them had harsh masters and others had caring and loving masters. So no matter what kind of boss you have, whatever kind of master you have, unless your boss is asking you to sin and dishonor God, you are called to be submissive in everything. And this plays out in a few ways that are highlighted here. Well pleasing. We should do a good job. We should strive to complete work that is pleasing and acceptable. And not only for our employer, but also to God. Whenever we see well pleasing here, it's usually actually in reference to pleasing God. So we need to ask ourselves would God be pleased? at the quality of the work that we're doing? If we were to lay it before the Lord, lay it before God himself, would he be pleased by it? Secondly, not argumentative. So not only are we to do good work, we shouldn't argue or fight with our bosses. And now that it doesn't mean that you can't provide feedback or input into different decisions, but you can do so in a way that's helpful or you can do so in a way that's combative, and argumentative. Not pilfering. So this is actually not that complicated either. Don't steal from your boss. Um, Now, while you might not be hacking into their bank accounts and wiring funds out, you need to treat your employer's property as theirs. So, you know, using office supplies, things like that, even the time that's supposed to be your employer's when you're on the clock is theirs. Show all good faith. So even if you do good, well-pleasing work, even if you don't outwardly argue with your boss or your employer, even if you don't steal things from them, you need to show all good faith. And this speaks to this idea of giving them the benefit of the doubt, showing loyalty, having a good attitude towards your employer, not complaining, not having a suspicious and complaining heart towards them. And then finally, we have the last, so that. All of these things that we've discussed are in the service of adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. So as a slave, or for us as employees, we are to do all these things for the greater purpose, a greater purpose than just our jobs, a greater purpose than just our own reputation. But it's to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So the way that we work is a testimony that can shine the light of the gospel and demonstrate the greatness of Christ, our Savior. And just bringing all of these topics home and bringing them together, this has really been the underlying motivation for all the things that we've been discussing this evening. Not just as an employee, but as a man or a woman of God, a young man or an old man or a young woman or an old woman, our character... Is an adornment for the gospel. It sends a message. Our character is a testimony of God's good work through his word, and it's a visible illustration of the gospel at work in someone's life. It's the platform that verifies that our message of a God who saves sinners and then transforms them into his likeness is powerful and precious. Like a stained glass window When imperfect, misshapen shards of glass are brought together in the hands of a master craftsman and then they're illuminated by the light of the sun, they display a beautiful image. When imperfect, fallen sinners are redeemed by Christ and brought together in his church and the light of the gospel shines through in our character, it displays to a watching world the glory of our Father in heaven. And I'll close that's with the cross-reference in Matthew five sixteen that our small group brought up when we went through this passage. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, not just that it has saved us and not just that it gives us new life, Lord, but it also enables us to live that new life in a way that can be a testimony and a way that can further your good news that you save sinners, Lord, and you transform sinners to be like your son. So, Father, thank you for not only saving us from the ultimate penalty of our sin, but we also thank you for saving us from the power of sin as well, and one day from the presence of sin itself, Lord. We pray that we can live lives that accord with sound doctrine. Thank you for showing us in your word what that looks like, and I just pray that as we each consider who we are, the different roles that we may have in the church body and what you call us specifically to, I pray that we would pursue those things, not out of a man-centeredness or a works-based striving, Lord, but because we've already been transformed. And I just pray that these things would become clear and that others would see your gospel for what it truly is, something that's precious and something that's valuable. In Christ's name I pray, amen.